0: Welcome to Case by Case. This is a podcast brought to you by Luke Zadkovich, Callum Chain, and today we have a special guest, Philip Vagin. How are you guys? Not bad at all. Thanks for the invite, Luke. How
1: many times is this on the podcast, Philip?
0: Uh, the third time. Third time. Hopefully third's the magic. Third time's the charm third time i think he could be leading the guest numbers callum i haven't checked but i reckon that might be out in
1: front i think he is and for good reason because we always get some good conversation going when philip's on on the
0: podcast absolutely Absolutely. Look, I'm, I'm looking forward to this one. Thank you all to our listeners for listening in today. We've got a, a shipping case for you. This is an interesting one, actually. We're going to touch on navigation and navigation exception uh, in, in Charter Party claims, as well as unseaworthiness and importantly, how the two kind of marry up with each other or don't marry up with each other and look at causation through through the prism of this London Arbitration Award two twenty three. Exactly. Some interesting points to discuss on this one, unsafe port
1: and uh, unseaworthiness in the, in the context of vessel charts. And it looked like, like a, it's an arbitration, but it was treated with a high degree of seriousness from all the parties involved. You had KCs representing each party, you had uh, external experts coming in and doing their bit in front of the tribunal. So this was kind of fought, as a lot of arbitration cases are, this was this was kind of fought in, the, in what seems like a very formal setting you know, akin to to a court
0: hearing. Definitely, over four days as well in in October 2022. So yeah, a proper hearing. And I, I picked up that the experts had a round of hot tubbing first before being uh, cross-examined. you got you got to re- be relaxed, you know, for the get the spa day in first. Exactly, exactly. A bit of, bit of a sauna um, <laughs> before going into the heavy stuff. Yeah, but oh, interesting. We don't, we don't often see that in the maritime cases, but I've heard colloquially that it's increasing. So something to note for the practitioners there. Philip, would you, sorry, I put you on the spot, but would you like to have a crack at talking about some of the facts of this one? yeah. Uh,
2: so this is a case about a vessel that proceeded to discharge cargo in, uh, in China. I think the uh, discharge berth was at Chaozhou. And in order to get to the berth, the vessel had to follow an approximately six and a half nautical mile long prose channel, which then ended with a 45 degree turn to starboard. That would have allowed the vessel to then enter the harbour. So what happened is the vessel took on board a local pilot and proceeded down that route. Now it's important to say here that the vessel carried several different types of paper charts on board, including the UK chart, one Chinese chart and the electronic chart. Now None of these charts, as it later turned out, showed the limits of the approach channel. So the vessel took the pilot on board. The pilot had their own portable pilot unit with them. This is a device that pilots use that combines GPS, AIS data from other vessels and yet another charting system. The vessel proceeded through a substantial part of the channel. And as the pilot was trying to execute a turn to starboard to meet that 45 degree angle, the vessel didn't respond on time. It didn't gain enough of an angle and essentially rounded, rammed into a side of the channel. And as a result, owners of the vessel sustained approximately 1 million in repair costs because the uh, hull was scraped and damaged by a rock and they tried to recover all of these costs and expenses from charterers asserting a variety of claims saying that the port was unsafe because the pilots were incompetent and also that the vessel was unseaworthy as a result of not having the right charts at the
1: beginning of the voyage yeah, so you had these these two competing reasons for the damage. One was the owners who were saying this was charterer's fault because the port was unsafe and it's charterers are obliged to nominate safe ports. And then you had charterers who were who were saying no, we're not responsible. You're responsible because the vessel was unseaworthy and that was the cause of the of the damage. So, as you say Philip, a lot, you know, there's a lot of interesting technical facts on this one, particularly around the approach and you know what the master should have done, what the pilot should have done, what exactly went wrong. You can imagine how they exhausted four days of hearing going back and forth on these points and plotting out the the route and really making making sure the tribunal understood exactly what had happened. Yeah. And you can see that
2: from how the case was reported in the Ellen uh, Malin report. You'll see that the bulk of the text is the discussion of facts. And then the expert evidence and it's only towards the very end of the report i think it's the last two or three pages that the reporter and presumably the tribunal as well discuss the law and 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 how it applies here and i think it's one of those cases where as it often happens when the fact finder is clear on causation and what actually happened in the dispute the legal assessment falls neatly into place
1: hmm it's often the way and you'll 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 notice as well as anybody when you read the reports they're written knowing what the outcome is and sometimes that i think as you read through it seems very self-evident what the decision is going to be and some and sometimes it's because actually the question has a reasonably simple answer but this is one where i thought Actually reading back through, you can see the way that you know this is this is reported and that's a very good report, a very very well drafted and helpful and detailed arbitration report. And I think these LN reports are getting better and better, by the way, I should I should say. But they document the tribunal's findings in a way that is consistent with presumably how the tribunal came to their view. And I think there probably was a lot of heated interesting back and forth on whether or not this passage this this approach to the port was safe or not and it certainly looks like you know they didn't go as far as finding it unsafe so it was safe but it was certainly you know you got the sense that it's certainly a very difficult approach you know technical complex approach to this to this port and maybe didn't quite meet that threshold of unsafe but certainly there was some debate on that
0: yeah I, I entirely agree. Firstly, that the Lloyd's Maritime Law Newsletter uh, summaries are getting better. I, I think these are great. And this is not the first one we've had. We've seen a few of these now that have been reported uh, with this level of detail. And for practitioners, for clients in the field, it's really, really helpful to, this, to get this kind of detail in the decision. but I, I And I agree with you to an extent, Callum, that, you know, it's drafted in a way where you can see where it's headed. But is that really different to how an award is drafted, right? right. An award is drafted in the same way and, and judgments as well. I'm not, I don't, I'm not just focusing on arbitrators here, but, you know, an, an award will typically be written in a way where they know the decision they are headed towards. They'll support that with their findings and, and why they, they get to that, that, Position and also they'll try and tie off loose ends around any potential appeal points, uh, which is kind of natural, I think, for for any fact finder and you know arbitrator or or judge in the in the role of coming up with a finding. So the summary, I I suspect, reflects how it's written in the award. But I just wanted to pick up on a point that Philip makes, and I, and I think it's a good one because we've seen a few of these cases now where the arbitrators have come to what seems to be quite a clear view on causation without much debate around the tests for causation. And in some ways, you could say, you know, a causation analysis is is well suited for arbitrators who have a lot of experience in the field. They know the industry. They've got a good feel for for what has ultimately caused a problem. And it looks like That's been the position here with arbitrators with significant experience. And I just wonder though, and I pose this for for discussion, whether there's enough analysis around what's the appropriate causation test. And when you have competing causes, one which may be accepted and one which may not, uh, as we have here, and we'll get into it a little bit, whether there's enough around the law on causation and i i have a view that there's more to be done in terms of the body of law that's built up on causation in a maritime context i know there's a lot out there already but i, I just i feel like there's a few arguments in there that that are yet to be fully ventilated
1: it's an interesting point and i wonder if i mean often the arbitrators reflect the when know what's being pleaded. They can only they can only deal with what's in front of them. So, I wonder if there is a a point there, which is that you know don't scrimp on your causation arguments. There might be more to it. And and as you say, sometimes this is a this is the point where the case you know lives or dies. And yeah, causation is always that always that interesting one for appeal as well, because you're kind of half fact, half law. So it does throw up some interesting issues or um in in appeals as well.
0: Hmm. Why don't we come back to that that question and, and let's lay out what the arbitrators have found here um, on the law and how they've dealt with the unsafe port question and the unseaworthiness question uh, and indeed the negligent um, navigation point. Maybe before we touch
2: on that, we address a preliminary question, which I would agree hmm. is quite basic, but maybe it's still worth explaining. If it was the pilot's error, then why... Are the charterers on hook for that? Because I guess to many of the listeners who are not familiar with how these disputes play out, that will be the first point of interest. If it's the pilot who committed the uh, mistaken navigation, why isn't the pilot or the pilot's association not being sued? And why is the claim being brought under the Charter Party? And I mean, the, the explanation for that is relatively straightforward in most pilotish contracts, you have very wide exclusion and limitation of liability provisions, which essentially in many cases mean that the pilot is not liable unless his action was intentional or knowing. And that would exclude many claims uh, where there's only negligence in navigation. And also, despite the fact that pilots make rather large salaries in many jurisdictions, and it's very well a profession. Typically, the pilots association, which may have some money is, is not liable for the acts of the pilot. So it's very rarely does it make uh, economic sense to go against the pilot, even though the pilot is the party who caused the incident.
1: And I think the one of the very big recognisable recent examples of that was the Suez Canal, the, the Ever Given, where I remember at the time, reading a lot of material on on pilot liability. And I don't know what the details of the legal fallout from that from that case were. But I do remember at the time there being a lot of interest around whether the pilot would have any liability. And most people coming to the view that it was highly unlikely given the Suez pilotage contract that there would be any liability to the pilot.
2: Yeah, and that's that's typically the case, or at least that's my understanding of it, in not most jurisdictions. It's typically very, very hard to make a pilot liable and make them pay out the damages caused by the incident. Yeah, but my apologies for this segue. I think let's head into uh discussing what the award actually says about the claims that were presented against charterers.
0: You've been you've been in London too long, Philip. You're making apologies for nothing. I think it's an excellent point to raise. I, I say that with, you know, tongue in cheek to our, our English colleagues, of course. And I'm speaking with a with a strong Aussie accent in that comment. But I, I think it's a fair point to raise right at the outset, because you have this and it's factually relevant in this case. You have this interaction between pilot and master, you know, and it's the master who's ultimately responsible for the ship and has ultimate control of the ship. But the pilot's the one with the local knowledge steering and sailing the vessel through the channel. And I, I think it is really interesting to think about, well, what what is the limits of the master's involvement in that, in, the, in this case, this entry into a discharging port like okay, how much should the should the master be looking at the charts and peering over the shoulder of the pilot or speaking with the pilot about matters of navigation when the master's ultimately responsible for the ship i think it goes to causation so i, I think it's right to raise that right at the outset it's a really interesting and important point to emphasize and i think that's a point that
2: the tribunal doesn't perhaps analyze in such great detail or at least maybe the report does not reflect that analysis, if if it was there, the interaction between what the pilot did and what the master should have done. The default position is that pilot is legally an, an advisor to the master, and the master ultimately retains responsibility for navigation of his or her vessel. But in practice, what typically happens is that the pilot is the one with local knowledge one who knows how a particular channel works it's undercurrents and in, in practice it's difficult for the master to make a calculated decision to override the pilot because if the pilot's decision is overridden there's a delay and there's a likelihood that owners would be faced with a claim for delay but yet again on the other side of the spectrum if there is a danger in following the pilot's suggestion and the pilot's choice isn't overridden or ignored. You have an accident, like a grounding. Uh, so it's, in practice, not not an easy step for any master to take, I guess, to, to say that the pilot is wrong, it was standing the vessel into danger and that the pilot's command should be ignored.
1: Do you, I mean, there's an element there of if you're the owner and you are you go to at the charterer's instruction you go to a port which has got this highly technical approach you take a local pilot on board your master is not an expert in this highly technical local approach but they follow the master the, the pilot's instructions basically defer responsibility to the pilot who knows the area the vessel grounds you suffer a big loss i i can see why owners were, were coming after charterers here and saying this is an unsafe an unsafe port issue because We've we've kind of done all, all all that we could with our people on board, and yet the ship has still ended up in a position where it suffered a you know a serious amount of damage due to a grounding. That's not really how the law, how the law found that it worked. But I do I do sympathise a little bit with with owners, I guess, frustration at being lumped with this cost when they're following charters' orders and the then and then the the instructions of a of a local pilot.
0: Yeah. I, I totally agree, Callum. I, I can see why owners went after charterers. I don't know whether this is, a, well, I think the evidence was that this was a channel that it's not like there's a there's a long history of problems entering it. And, and I know you've described it as, as technical. I'm not sure, is there evidence that there, it was any particularly more difficult than, than other channels? I thought what was interesting, let's just come back to that. But I I thought it was interesting, actually, when you when you look at what the arbitrators said about the experts. So each party brought along an expert um, to give evidence on matters of, of navigation. And the tribunal actually found that neither of them were particularly helpful, ultimately. They, they were helpful and well-qualified in the sense that they gave their evidence. But if, again, from a practitioner's perspective, there were notes made in this summary that the evidence of both of the experts had flaws and the value of those reports and their evidence was limited. So one of the experts had not appreciated that one of the tugs was made fast, despite references to that in the deck logs and in the master's own note of protest. And so there was a kind of a factual omission in the report and the evidence which undermined the conclusions of that expert. And then on the other side, there was an expert that was said to be prone to hyperbole. And, and we all know from our own cases that that just doesn't go over well with tribunals when one expert appears to be veering more into the, the realm of advocacy or leaning more one way than the other in, in the way that they're describing the issues. And the better experts are much more factual. They, they will give Concessions on points that go against their own the party that appointed them, and they will come across as being there as is their responsibility and role to assist the tribunal. So the the tribunal placed much more reliance on the the data uh, that had been obtained from the vessel, uh, conversations on the bridge, the the data around where the vessel was in the channel at any given time, and then there were satellite. Charts that were overlaid uh, onto the path of of the vessel according to its own uh, data, and those that kind of hard data, if you like, was was really what underpinned a lot of the the factual findings. And maybe that was the case because, as
2: the report points out, I think at least two of the uh, three arbitrators who ultimately decided the dispute had master mariner background. And maybe that's not reflected in the report itself, but. I remember reading more about this particular decision. Yeah, it actually says that two of them were master mariners. And maybe maybe that played quite a lot of a role here, where if you have an arbitrator with a very technical navigational background, they're much less likely to take the experts that the parties present and their qualifications uh, for granted. And maybe that's One of the reasons the award, well,
0: goes a bit to criticise the performance of both experts. I think that's a really good point, Philip. And we had this comment made, and I'm trying to remember whether it was a case-by-case callum or whether one of our seminars that we did on the US side with some US arbitrators. And the point was made that depending on the arbitrator that is appointed or arbitrators that are appointed in the proceedings there are occasions when you can actually defer if you like to the arbitrator's own expertise on these matters and not present expert evidence yourself and and it was put as a kind of cost saving point whereas and here would I go into a case like this recommending to the client look don't have an expert when the other side has well probably not but, you know, that said, it, it does strike me when you look at this case and how it was, how it unfolded at least, that, and we don't know the ins and outs of it and everything else, we're just basing it on, on this summary. But if you have, as Philip says, two strong master mariners that will come to their own views on, on these technical matters and rely on the data themselves, there is an open question as to, you know, how much value has, has been obtained from the use of the party's independent experts. And I, I say that with the greatest respect to the experts. And uh, what I wonder is if you're perhaps the point is, if you're in a case where you've got highly technical arbitrators sitting on the panel, that it's even more important to have experts who are going to be straight down the line in in, in what they're presenting. They're not going to come across as you know advocates in any way. Uh, and they're going to have their facts right and, and make sure they, they're they really close on the facts because they're going to be picked up otherwise.
1: Yeah, this was a point that was flagged by an SMA arbitrator in a presentation we were doing with with, uh, uh, with a number of different uh, US law experts and arbitrators and it is a good one and I think you're right. You know, it's a, it's a bold move to say we don't need expert evidence because we already have experts on the tribunal but stepping back, what are the experts there to do? They're there to explain points of fact to the tribunal. And if the tribunal can already get their heads around those particular technical facts, then where is the need for the experts? I can quite see why each party would have their own kind of consulting or advising expert so that they can better advise their clients. But do you really need those experts at the hearing? I think there's a there's a good argument that, that you don't, provide the tribunal are kind of granted enough time to read around all the documents to form their mm-hmm. own you know, form their own kind of expert opinion on the on the disputed issues of fact.
0: Yeah, and as long as they've got a jacuzzi for some hot tubbing, then you know, it's (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I joke. I joke. Sorry, Philip, you're gonna say
2: no 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 i I was just about to say that objectively that that may well be the case but explaining to the clients that you're not advising them to instruct an expert in a case like this and you know you would recommend them to
0: just rely on the tribunal's expertise
2: a tough decision to make yeah
0: yeah yeah right so where are we what were some of the findings here on on the actual law, and what are the legal issues that we're looking at?
1: Yeah, so maybe I'll take unsafe port first. The Eastern City is the case cited here, and it is the established test for whether a port is unsafe. And the test is whether, in the relevant period of time, the ship can reach, use, and return from the port without, in the absence of some abnormal, abnormal occurrence, being exposed to danger that could not be avoided by good navigation and seamanship. And that's your test for an unsafe port, has been since the nineteen fifties, recently reconfirmed, I say recently within the last five, six years or so, reconfirmed by the Supreme Court, I think in the Ocean Victory case. And the the court here held that the channel was safe because there was no indication that that it that the ship could not reach, use and return from the port without any dangers that could be avoided by good navigation and seamanship. They said effectively a one-off mistake doesn't amount to a defect in the setup of the port interestingly they looked at it for, through the perspective of a, a one-off mistake by a competent pilot is not a defect in the setup of the port and that's from a case called the evia but i think it's better known for its law on on the calculation of damages but either way it clearly also on the facts talks about the unsafe port issue and the 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 analysis was reasonably straightforward, therefore, it's not going to be an unsafe port if if it's a one-off mistake by a competent pilot. That's not a defect in the port, that is something else. And therefore, on the Eastern City test, the port is safe and owners claim against charterers for directing the vessel to an unsafe port would fail.
0: Yeah, and what's interesting about that is that the uh, a few things interesting about it, but one of them is that the pilot did not give evidence in this hearing, so there was no cross examination on on the pilot's expertise background and all of that directly against against the pilot anyway, and that that's quite a big issue, I think. It's it's, it's quite difficult, and when you think about all the evidence and all the summary that we've got on the facts here, there doesn't seem to be the type of focus one may expect on, on what failures there could have been around the pilot's background, pilot's history. Maybe there wasn't, you know, they weren't able to find anything. But when you're talking about an unsafe port claim and making that out from an owner's perspective, you really need to be thinking about it in terms of like patterns of problems at that port and a history of issues that are not being dealt with. Many pilots having problems, you know, an issue in the recruitment of pilots, uh, inexperienced pilots. This pilot had been working since 2010, I think, and there's no evidence of prior issues. As I, I, if I'm i going off recollection here, but I, I think that was the, the evidence. And without that, you're, it's going to be difficult to make out an unsafe port claim. You, you, you kind of need that that extra that, that that extra those extra issues rather than just the one off. You need the pattern. You need the system. You need the defective operations over some period of time. I think to make these kind of claims out. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And if you look even at how the test for
2: unsafety of the port in these circumstances is framed, it's a disabling lack of skill and knowledge. Deriving from inherent lack of ability, lack of adequate training, lack of particular knowledge or just disinclination to perform the job properly. And I think it's a just based on these words, a relatively high bar to meet, which was not met in this case, because it does appear that owners could only point to just this one mistake. And I think that's a situation that in maritime and shipping disputes, one may come across quite often in the uh, Holland Machinery Insurance context, for instance, it's not enough to say that the vessel, for instance, is unseaworthy is un- in, in-, in breach of a warranty. If there's a one-off mistake by the master, you need to show that the master lacked training or was generally incompetent. In the limitation of liability cases on the US side, again, it's not enough to show that the vessel was unseaworthy, or that uh, the master was negligent in one instance, and therefore owners lose their right to limit, you need to show that there was a defect of a systemic nature of supervising the crew. So I think that's this one-off, not one-off mistake division. It's, it's not just an unsafe board claims that you're seeing. I think it's a, a more general theme running throughout many uh shipping disputes. And back to the point about why the pilot himself did not testify, well, I suppose in practical terms, it would have been quite difficult for owners to compel their testimony. I mean, the pilot would have been Chinese and the testimony that he would have been giving, well, that would have sounded like him admitting his or her negligence in arbitration proceedings. So it's just probably not surprising why we didn't see a witness statement And then testimony from the pilot, despite the fact that, you know, he is the central figure here.
0: Yeah. Right. So
1: unseaworthiness. Unseaworthiness. So here we have a question of whether or not the ship was unseaworthy. And this is charter is basically saying back to owners. No, this is actually your fault owners because the ship was unseaworthy in particular. They're talking about the charts and, there were a number of different charts that covered the waters in question, but only one of those charts showed the uh, kind of draft restrictions and all the specific details that were necessary to for the owners to to know that there was a kind of limited period, I guess a limited margin of error in the way that the ship was, was moving to berth and the ship did not have that chart on board. And... Therefore, they weren't able to prepare a passage plan that was compliant with IMO Resolution uh, A89321. And this was something that the uh, tribunal found to be enough to make the ship unseaworthy. Basically, you you need to have all of the the charts necessary to make your passage plan. And if you don't, then that is potentially an unseaworthiness issue.
2: Yeah, I think we have seen that proposition confirmed in our several cases recently in england i suppose the most well-known of them being the uh, cma cgm libra which held exactly that if you don't have a uh, proper passage plan because there's a defective or an outdated chart at the beginning of voyage, the vessel is not seaworthy but in this arbitration it's very interesting to see how this played out on the facts and whether that finding of unseaworthiness actually impacted the outcome. And I think in order to understand why it didn't, we need to pay attention to the piece of equipment that the pilot had with them when they boarded the ship, the PPU, the Portable Pilot Unit, I think it's referred to in the report. And that, that device that pilot took with them on board actually had the correct chart. And I think that influenced the tribunal's decision on causation to a very large degree basically because despite the fact that the vessel didn't have the right chart the pilot could still have navigated the vessel in the channel using the appropriate chart and therefore the cause or at least the more substantial cause i guess was the pilot's own in navigation rather than the absence of the chart on board the ship at the beginning of the voyage yeah uh, but Then again, uh, back to our discussion at the start of the conversation about causation, whether that's been properly analysed here. With utmost respect, I, I don't think the report really delves into portioning causation or deciding causation, because there's still a point, well, fair enough, the ship did not have the appropriate chart. But what should have the master done? I mean, didn't the absence of that chart, which would have been provided by owners themselves, deprive the master of his ability to intervene and take over command and override the pilot's decision. I, I I, I do think there's something to it. And maybe that alternative causation or sort of second cause here uh, sh- should have been analyzed a bit more in, in the decision. And for that reason, I'm curious to see how you know how how rules on causation should apply in in this scenario where you have a substantial cause but you also have something which would have allowed owners and the master to prevent the incident
1: and do you think it do you think it's material in this in this
2: case it really does depend on how you define material whether that Mm. would have definitely prevented the incident from occurring I don't know. But the report does mention several times that but for the lack of charts, the master would have had the ability to to, to intervene and take over command and override uh, the pilot's order, which at least to my mind is, is, is a bit strange because the arbitrators then do proceed to find against owners. But at the same time, they highlight that there is this but for causation as well because
0: of the lack of uh, chance on the ship. Yeah, but that, I suppose that, that's because of the mutual exception clause, right? So, you know, errors of navigation are mutually accepted here. So that means that owners, once they can't make out the unsafe port claim, once yeah, unsafe port claim against charterers, if it's a, an error of navigation, then they're, they're going to struggle to make out that claim against, against charterers, right? Exactly. Um, so... I think that's that's Callum's point that yes, there is an interesting causation issue here, which I which I noted as well. But ultimately it, it's immaterial in the sense that owners claim has failed here and the unseaworthiness that there is with respect to the lack of certain charts on board or charts on board and that, that that is unseaworthiness didn't really change the overall outcome in this case is yeah that, is that your is that your point Cameron? exactly if your charter is you're
1: saying i i actually don't mind if it's negligent navigation unseaworthiness, want of due diligence dangers or accidents to the sea errors of navigation whatever it is as long as it's not an unsafe port issue owner's problem And 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 i agree there are all sorts of interesting causation arguments around what would it have been if it was one or more or different ones of the of all those different causes but i think fundamentally Perhaps why there wasn't a detailed analysis or, you know, a a kind of exhaustive analysis on causation between the ones that the arbitrators found to be relevant was because whichever one they landed on, it was a risk the owners had agreed to bear. And they were in trouble the moment that the port was was found to be safe by the tribunal.
0: Yeah, I see that. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, okay. Any other kind of final remarks on this one? We've got good mileage out of this for a, for an for a London arbitration. Sometimes sometimes those are sort
1: of shorter, punchier podcasts. But we've got good mileage. We've transited some interesting areas. Pleasure as ever to have Philip on the podcast. Yeah, well.
2: Thank you very much for inviting me and having me here.
0: Yeah, it's great to great to have you on, Phil, as always. Thanks for for your time. Thank you for everyone for listening in. We're, we're always pleased if you're picking up the conclusion at the end of the podcast. It means you've you've listened in for the whole thing. So thank you. Please do subscribe and like and and what have you on the posts you see and and to our channel. We very much appreciate uh, our our listenership and our audience. So thank you. Until next time, take it easy. I think. And we might be going on to fraud and, and outside the world of shipping next week, Callum. so um, with a with a very special guest um, that I, I know I'm looking forward to. I won't, won't give away the details just yet, but listen in next week. It should be a good one. Exactly. Exciting times. Until next time, take care. See you. Bye.